Well, good morning, Calvary Vista. Yes, my name is John Wang. And you know, I, I realized as I shared that during first service that there's enough young people now that they just don't get that anymore. You know, like I shared, I, I spent 10 years on the mission field in Brazil. And in 2002, when I left for the mission field, I went with a couple of my friends. Their names were Chris Cross and Tom Jones. And we have a friend, his name is Roy Rogers, and we were trying to get him to come along, but I noticed the only people that left were the older people. None of the young adults knew what I was talking about. Well, those were celebrity names, and I do remember when my little, she's an eight-year-old girl now, but she must have been around four or five, and we were up at the Orange County Airport, and you know it's John Wayne Airport. And so as we were walking through the lobby, they said over the speaker, welcome to John Wayne Airport. And I remember my little girl looking up at me like, Dad, you have an airport? <laughs> and I lied and I said yes. But I'll tell you, it is such a blessing to be here at Calvary Vista. I was trying to do the math yesterday and I realized that the last time I was here was back in 1996. And it was when Pastor Brian Broderson was transitioning out and Pastor Robert uh, Rob, uh, Silvato was transitioning in. And I, I love your pastor. I have known Rob for years. I've known him when he was the high school pastor here. I knew him when he was pastoring up in Oregon, there in Salem. And now to see the Lord using him and working through him here is so encouraging. And it's a great example for me that when a life simply says, Lord, I'm yours, here am I, however you want to use me, he'll take you up on that offer. And I'm excited to see the Lord doing more of that in the lives of more of his people. And so thank you again for giving me the opportunity to spend this Sunday with you today. Now, this morning, as was already mentioned, we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. So I'd like us to all stand together as I read verses 1 through 8. This is a passage in the Bible that is worth standing for. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. I'm going to just read through these verses, and then we're going to pray. And then I'd like to share with you a message that I've simply entitled, King Jesus. So Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, woe is me. For I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away, and your sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. Wow. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for Isaiah 6. And 
for everything that is packaged in these eight verses. And I pray that this morning that your spirit will open our understanding to not only understand the meaning of these eight verses, but to clearly see Jesus. And I pray that every single one of us will be impacted and transformed as a result of it. And Lord, my heart for all of us, me included, is that we will leave this place more in love with you than before. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Now, the subject of the scripture that we just read here in Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8, it is King Jesus. Now, the reason why I say that these verses are about Jesus is because if you press the fast forward button and you travel 700 years from Isaiah 6, you land at John chapter 12, verse 41. And in John 12, 41, moved, directed, guided by the Holy Spirit, John the Apostle, he references to this scene in Isaiah chapter 6, and he tells us that the Lord that Isaiah saw was Jesus. Isn't that awesome? It was Jesus that Isaiah saw 700 years before Jesus came as a man to earth. And I call him a king because that's what Isaiah 6, 5 tells us about Jesus. He says, I saw the king, the Lord of hosts. And that means that Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8, it brings a clean and clear vision of King Jesus. Now, because the scripture is about King Jesus, that means a sermon is going to be about King Jesus. This morning, I want for all of us to focus in and see King Jesus in this message. In fact, there are five things that I want to talk about. We're going to see that King Jesus is the divine king. And then we're going to see he's the supreme king and the exalted king. We're going to see he's the holy king. And we're going to finish up our time together by talking about how he's the saving king. So I want you to come and see, come and behold King Jesus. So here we go, number one. Who is King Jesus? Listen, King Jesus is the divine king. Check out verse five. Isaiah says, my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Now, I want you to find the word Lord, and I want you to notice that Lord is in all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Now, when you're reading through the Old Testament, and whenever you see Lord in all caps, it's written down that way for a reason, because here, all caps, the Lord, is a reference to God's own personal name. Guys, Lord in all caps in the Old Testament is the English substitute for Y-H-W-H. Now, some people pronounce that as Yahweh. Some people pronounce that as Jehovah. But this is the name that God revealed himself with back in Exodus 3.14. Remember when Moses was there in the presence of God and Moses said, hey, when I go back and people ask me, who's the one that sent you? What do I tell them? And God said, hey, here's my name. My name is I am who I am. And whenever you read the Old Testament and Lord shows up in all caps, that's his name. I am who I am. So here we see the first thing about King Jesus, and that is he is God. 
King Jesus is God. And that's really important that we understand this. Listen, Jesus was not merely a good man. Jesus was not merely a great prophet. He was not just a God among many other gods, lowercase, small letter G. When we talk about King Jesus, we are talking about capital letter G, God. And listen, this fact is repeated again and again in the Bible. In fact, let me give to you three references from the Bible. This is why we believe Jesus is God. First, Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. In Philippians 2, 6, Paul the Apostle, talking about Jesus, says, who being in very nature God. That's clear. Jesus is God. Check out Colossians 1.15. Colossians 1.15, again, speaking about Jesus, he is the image. He is the visible, tangible, audible. He is the image of the invisible God. And one more, 1 John 5.20, and I love this one. 1 John 5.20, talking about Jesus, says, He is the true God and eternal life. Listen, you cannot get clearer than that. Jesus is God, and this means that whenever we talk about Jesus, we are talking about the second person of the one triune God. Listen, he is eternal and uncreated. He is holy, he is sovereign, he is supreme, he is all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he's everywhere present at the same time. He is the maker and the sustainer of all things created, and he is worthy of all worship, worthy of all devotion, and worthy of all obedience. And listen, if that is not your Jesus. You've got the wrong Jesus. Jesus is God, and he is the divine king. Number two, not only is Jesus the divine king, but listen, he is the supreme king. King Jesus is the supreme king. Look at verse one. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Wow. And then in verse 5 again, Isaiah says, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I love these words so much because they tell me that King Jesus is supreme over all other kings. In verse 1, find the word Lord. Now, in verse 1, Lord shows up different than in verse 5, right? In verse 5, Lord is in all caps. In verse 1, Lord is capital L than lowercase o-r-d. And the reason why is because it's a different Hebrew word. In verse 5, all caps Lord, that's God's name. In verse 1, capital letter L than lowercase o-r-d, that's God's title, And here, the Hebrew word translated Lord is Adonai. Have you heard that word before? Adonai. And Adonai means supreme Lord. It means Lord of all. And this word stresses the sovereignty of God as all ruler. Now listen. Being Adonai, it means that King Jesus is greater than all earthly Kings, and I don't know about you, but in view of all the political and social chaos in the world today, this fact is good news. Guys, King Jesus is infinitely greater than all the great kings of earth. 
And this includes pharaohs and Caesars and kings and queens and presidents and prime ministers and diplomats and dignitaries and even dictators. Listen, King Jesus alone is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And here's something you need to know about this king. King Jesus continues to rule when the kings of earth cease to rule. For example... We see that King Jesus is supreme over King Uzziah, right? We see it here. The nation of Judah had regarded Uzziah as one of her greatest kings. In fact, at this time that Isaiah wrote this, King Uzziah had brought the nation of Judah to its greatest days since King David and King Solomon. But as great as Uzziah was, his 50 plus years of reign, it ended when he died. It ended with his death in three or 739 BC. And listen, in contrast to King Uzziah, King Jesus lives on. In contrast to King Uzziah, King Jesus reigns on, and he's going to continue living on, and he's going to continue ruling on. And listen, all the rulers of the world today that are displaying some sort of power. Listen, you need to understand whether they are good or bad, they all have an expiration date. Whether it's a limit to their term of rule and office or it's by death. Listen, every human rule and government will end, but King Jesus will live on. And King Jesus will rule on. And that's why in Hebrews 1.8 it says, Your throne, O God, speaking to Jesus, is forever and ever. Who is King Jesus? He's the divine king. He's the supreme king. And number three, he is the exalted king. King Jesus is the exalted king. Again, in verse 1, we read, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, Isaiah tells us where he sees King Jesus. We see that he is sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. Now, we all know what a throne is, right? A throne is a seat of authority and rule. Now, here in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, Listen, this throne belongs exclusively to God. This is the seat of God's authority. This is the seat of God's rule. And we see the words high and lifted up. And these words express exaltation. In fact, the New American Standard translates it as, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne lofty and exalted. I love that. King Jesus is highly exalted over all created things. And listen, his throne is highly exalted over all earthly thrones. This is why Psalm 103 verse 19 declares, The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Now, having seen his throne, guys, check out his train. Check out his train. It says the train of his robe filled the temple. Wow. His robe. This refers to King Jesus' kingly robe. Speaking about his robe, in Psalm 104 verse 1, it says, You are clothed with honor and majesty. 
In Revelation 19, 16, speaking about his robe, John says, on his robe, at his thigh. So on the robe of Jesus, that part that covers his thigh was written this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. Listen, that's a designer label only King Jesus can wear. And we see the train of his robe, it filled the temple. So here's a question. How big is God's house? I don't know, but I imagine it to be pretty big. Now check out how the train of the robe of King Jesus carpets God's temple in heaven wall to wall. Do you understand that no king on earth has ever carried a train this big? The message is clear. No king on earth has more honor and more majesty than King Jesus. Who is King Jesus? Listen, he's the divine king. He's the supreme king. He's the exalted king. And number four, he is the holy king. King Jesus is the holy king. Check out verses two through four. It says above it, that's talking about the throne of King Jesus. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So first we see the location. In verse 4, the house is the same as the temple that we see in verse 1. And I think that's really significant. I want you to observe that the throne of King Jesus is not in a palace. Why? Because the palace is a place for politics. Nor is the throne of King Jesus in a corporate office. Because that's the place for commerce. Where do we find the throne of King Jesus? In his temple. Why? Because in Isaiah 56 verse 7, it tells us that God's temple is the house of worship. And where do we find God's throne? In his house of worship. No wonder in Psalm 22 verse 3, it tells us that God is enthroned in the praises of his people. Guys, this is the reason why everything that we did leading up to this sermon and everything we're doing right now as we're listening to the sermon, everything that falls into the context of worship is such a big deal. It's because King Jesus is worthy of this. And when we gather and with one voice, we lift up our praises to God. We are enthroning King Jesus high and lifted up because that is rightfully his. This is our king. This is our king. And Isaiah's eyes were opened to see into God's heavenly temple. In Psalm 11 verse 4, it says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Now having seen the location, now we see the choir. 
There is a choir in heaven, verse 2 and 3. It says, above it, the throne of King Jesus stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one cried to another. So here we see a choir of these things called seraphim. Now, seraphim are angels. And the word seraphim means burning ones. Guys, these angels are literally on fire for God. And each seraph covers his face with two wings in humility and reverence before God. And each seraph covers his feet with two wings in dedicated service to God. And each seraph flies with two wings to do the will of God. I like what the Bible commentator Ray Ortland wrote about the seraph, seraphim. He said, the seraphim hover in constant motion, ready to do God's will. Now listen, they are living flames of pure nuclear-powered praise. This is this choir. And guys, when they get together to declare the praises of God, this is the big sound of a large choir. We see that this choir is made up of a large army of angels. In fact, in verse 5, when God is called the Lord of hosts, maybe your Bible translation says the Lord of heaven's armies. This is a massive number of seraphim and angels that have gathered around King Jesus to worship him, to praise him. How many angels will John said in Revelation 5.11, I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne. Try to wrap your mind around that. I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne. And their sound is so big and so loud that the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. Hey, here's something you need to know about heaven. Heaven is loud. Isaiah 6.3 tells us, and one cried to another. Not whisper. He shouted. He cried out. It means to proclaim aloud. Guys, listen. Worship in heaven is neither passive nor passionless. And the sound of the angels could not only be heard, but it could also be felt. And the praise of God's angels, it's this big and this loud because King Jesus is this big and this worthy to receive this kind of praise and this kind of worship. Here's a question. Is Jesus really that big to you? I am amazed how many people walk into church and they carry in their back pocket a boring Jesus. And they pull out this boring Jesus out of their back pocket only when he's convenient for them. Listen, do you understand there is no such thing in heaven as a boring Jesus? Do you really think that there are angels thinking, do we really have to worship him again today? For crying out loud, it's Labor Day weekend. We've been doing this for billions of years. I think Jesus can handle one weekend without us. There's none of that in heaven. You have to understand Jesus is so big and so amazing that every time the angels proclaim aloud his praises, it's as if they are uttering those words of praise for the very first time. And listen, if your Jesus is not this Jesus, 
then you need to understand that you have invented a false Jesus in the factory, the idol-making factory of fallen human imaginations, and the Bible only has one word for that. It's called idolatry. Because you've embraced a Jesus that doesn't exist. But I want all of us to understand, I want all of us to see clearly again who our Jesus is. He is not a back pocket Jesus. He is the Jesus who is high and lifted up on his throne and thousands and millions of angels are shouting forth his praises. And I'll tell you what, the only group of people that should be louder is the redeemed church, the people of God. Now check out their praise. Verse 3 says, and one cried to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. First, I want you to look at how the seraphim expressed their praise to God. It says that one cried to another and said, I love these words. I, I just try to imagine this scene and it's just so epic. So try to imagine there are thousands and millions of angels and they are all in groups. This choir is divided into different groups and each group has their own choir leader. And day and night without ceasing, there is one seraph that cries out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And on the other side of the throne room of heaven, you have another group of angels saying, yes, holy, holy, holy. And then you have on the other side of the throne room, another group that says, yes, holy, holy, back and forth, back and forth. These angels cry out, holy, holy, holy. And then the center of it all is King Jesus high and lifted up. Do you understand why when I preach this message, I have to crank up the volume? Isaiah 6 cannot, there's no way, I don't know how to speak on Isaiah 6 with the volume set to monotone. Man, this this is one of those passages you just got to crank up to full decimal. Listen, this is our King Jesus. This is my King. I hope and pray this is your king today. But not only do we see that they're declaring these things, but it's so important for us to understand that this act is not manufactured. This isn't manipulated. This is simply the right response to all that God is and all that God does. Now we saw how praise is happening, but now listen to what they're saying. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Listen, this is chorus with content. This is song with substance. This is doxology with theology. This is something more, something bigger than just la, la, la. Listen, this is holy, holy, holy. And the praise of God's angelic choir, it resonates with the truth of God's holiness because King Jesus is holy and King Jesus is the holy king. And this is truth for us to remember. Oswald Chambers, born 1874, went to heaven in 1917. He wrote, quote, there is a danger of forgetting that the Bible reveals not first the love of God, but the intense, blazing holiness of God with his love as the center of that holiness. 
So important for us to understand. We cannot afford to ever forget that God is holy, holy, holy. This means he is infinitely perfect in himself. This means he is completely unique from all created things. He is completely other than all things not God. And so the Bible speaks of the splendor of God's holiness and the majesty of God's holiness and the incomparability of God's holiness. Listen, when the angels are declaring holy, 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 this isn't just repetition. It is emphasis. Because God is holy, 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 and each word is boosting the force of the previous one exponentially. In the holiness of God, it distinguishes him absolutely, even from the sinless angels. That's who our king is. He is holy, holy, holy. But we also see his glory. We see God's glory in this passage. Whenever we talk about the glory of God, we are talking about the shining out of what God is. And so here in this passage, in verse 3, we see God's glory displayed on earth. It says the whole earth is full of his glory. We also see how God's glory is displayed in heaven. In verse 4, it says, And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled, check this out, with smoke. Now, this smoke could be the smoke that is rising from God's burning altar in heaven that we read about at the beginning. But it's important for us to understand that this smoke means something. We see in the Bible that this is the smoke of God's glory. In Revelation chapter 15, verse 8, it says, The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. Guys, one thing that we need to know about smoke. Smoke can get into every nook and cranny in a room. And the message here is we see that God's glory covers every square inch of God's temple, God's house up in heaven. But you know, it was really neat. After I preached this, the first service, there was a a gentleman that was waiting for me there in the foyer, and he shared something with me that I thought was so rich. It was gold. It just made the drive down to Vista worth it for that one observation. And he said, isn't it interesting that when you're at an event or a service where they're utilizing lights in order to extend um, to, to, to make the light clearer and more vivid, what do they do? They start filling the room up with smoke, right? Because the smoke has a way of defining the light in clearer terms. Guys, when we talk about the light of God's glory, when we talk about his holy, holy, holiness, it's not going to be blurred from our vision. It's not going to be misunderstood. It is going to be clearly seen. And what is going to clearly define all of this is the glory of God itself. Those are radical scenes. But check out how Isaiah responded in verse 5. So I said... Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
What else could Isaiah have said? How else could Isaiah have responded? Listen, in view of the holy king, Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am undone. Will you please listen to this and take note of this? A right view of God brings a right view of us. A right view of God brings a right view of us. It was Archbishop Anthony Bloom that said this, quote, It is not the constant thought of their sins, but the vision of the holiness of God that makes the saints aware of their own sinfulness. And this is evident in Isaiah's response when he said, woe is me for I am undone. Now, here's one of the problems for people, especially those that have grown up in the church. Sometimes we could read verses in the Bible and we could see statements and become so familiar with them that they become merely common. And as a result, there are really heavy passages in the Bible that loses its punchiness. And I think that sometimes we read these words and for many of us, it's lost its punchiness. But we need to understand for these words to come out of the prophet Isaiah, this is like gut-wrenching, gut-level stuff. And sometimes we just need to be reminded what Isaiah is declaring here. So I want you to listen to these same words from a couple of other, in fact, three other English translations. The English Standard Version puts it this way. Woe is me, for I am lost. The New American Standard says, woe is me, for I am ruined. All of this in response to seeing King Jesus for who he really is. And the New Living Translation puts it this way. It's all over. I'm doomed. These words are Isaiah's confession to God because in view of the holy king, Isaiah saw that he was a sinful man. When he said, woe is me for I am undone, listen, those following words, because I am a man of unclean lips, the New Living Translation translates it loosely as Isaiah saying, I am a sinful man. Now, why would they translate it that way? Because what came out of Isaiah's mouth, it displayed the condition of his heart. Isn't that what King Jesus told us in Luke 6.45? Didn't King Jesus say to us, out of the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. So when Isaiah confessed, God, my mouth is filthy. He was saying, my heart is filthy before you, King Jesus. I am a sinful man. But not only did he see the truth about himself, but he also saw the truth about his nation. The people that he was with, the society he lived in, the culture that was common in the day when he declared, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. The same way that a right view of God brings a right view of us, it also brings a right view of society and culture. This is why we say abortion is wrong. It's not just a personal opinion. It's because the holy king of heaven says it's wrong. 
This is why we call sin, sin, not because we feel that something should be labeled sin, but it's because when you take the norm of our culture and society and you put it before the king who is high and lifted up, that angels are declaring holy, 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 then we're able to clearly see the world that we're in and say, okay, this society and culture is really sinful. And everything I just said about me applies to them too. Woe is us, for we are undone. We are ruined. We are doomed. We are lost. A right view of God brings a right view of society and culture and a right view of people and people's lifestyles. Listen, people who've never cried out, woe is me, for I am undone, are those who have not seen a clear and clean vision of King Jesus, nor have they heard the angel shout, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Who is our king? He's the divine king. He's the supreme king. He's the exalted king. He's the holy king. But we can't stop there. You got one more. He's the saving king. King Jesus is the saving king. Look at verses 6 and 7. It says, And one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Back in verse 5, Isaiah recognized his undone his lost, his ruined, his doomed condition. He confessed, I am a sinful man. And in response to this, King Jesus showed himself to be the saving king. I want you to find there in verses six through seven, the words live coal. Maybe in your translation, it says burning coal. This is a coal with flames attached to it. It is burning hot. And in the Bible, fire oftentimes illustrates God's holiness and God's judgment. And notice where this burning, flaming coal comes from. It comes from the altar that is in God's house. Now, again, we all know what an altar is. An altar is a place for offering a sacrifice, and there is an altar in God's house. And listen, this piece of furniture, this altar, it means something there. It points to the altar, the cross of King Jesus. It's the altar on which King Jesus died for our sins. He paid the ransom price for our redemption, and he finished the work for our salvation. And it was on this altar that we saw fire fall from heaven. As King Jesus, he willingly, voluntarily went to the cross on your behalf and mine. And the most mysterious thing happened there. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. What does that mean? I can't wrap my mind around that theologically. That Jesus, this holy, holy, holy king, he became our theft without becoming a thief. He became our lie without becoming a liar. He became our sexual sin without becoming a pervert. He became our pride without becoming arrogant. He became our sin without becoming a sinner. He became our sin. He just didn't bear it. He became it. 
And by becoming our sin, then God, holy, 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 he poured out in full measure, not sparing one drop in full, massive measure, wrath upon wrath upon wrath. And for six hours, waves of judgment and punishment and wrath upon wrath upon wrath fell on Jesus and he absorbed it in his own body. For you, for me, and he drank it to the full. And you ask me why I love Jesus? Really? There was fire at the altar. King Jesus did that for you. King Jesus did that for me. And because of that, we see that as Isaiah confessed his sins, one of the seraphim he writes flew to me. I love that. He flew. Question, how fast can an angel fly? I don't know, but I'm sure it's pretty fast. And that's why as Isaiah confessed his sin in response to that confession, I'm so glad it doesn't say, and an angel walked to me. I'm so glad it doesn't say, and an angel jogged to me. But with angel speed, this angel flew to Isaiah. Guys, listen, the application is the moment we confess our sins to God, his mercy flies to us. And I believe that some of us need to hear that this morning. I think this is probably best illustrated in the life of King David. For almost a year, King David had been trying to cover up his crimes. He committed adultery with another man's wife. And then that woman became pregnant. And, and to cover that up, he murders the woman's husband. And then for almost a year, he plays the hypocrite as he inserts himself as the hero of the story. As here's this poor pregnant woman and King David says, you know what? I will take you into my family. And everybody thought, well, King David's a great guy. Until God exposed his sin as the prophet Nathan came and said, you sinned against God. And in 2 Samuel 12, 13, it says that David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. Now listen, that right there is a great passage of scripture to give us hope. But we need to understand, listen, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and we see it in English in our Bibles and we lose something in the translation. The way the Hebrew Bible reads that same passage is that when David was saying, I have sinned, Nathan was already declaring, the Lord has put away your sin, and then David got to against the Lord. In other words, before David could even reach the end of his confession, before David could even reach the period at the end of his sentence, mercy had already landed. Now we understand what the Bible means when it says that God is ready to pardon. He's ready to forgive. And some of you need to hear that today. 90% of you, of who you are, you're like, yes, I know God loves me. But there's still that 10% inside of you where you're still living with guilt and shame about stuff that's happened in the past. 
90% of you, hey, I get it. God loves me. Jesus died for me. I believe it. But there's still that 10% of you where you have regrets thinking, I've done things that are so shameful. I've done things I thought I would never do. I've been to places I thought I would never go. And I have committed sins. I told myself I would never commit. And you've been beating yourself up with that, not just for days and weeks, some of you for years. But you need to understand that God is in heaven just ready to pardon. He's just saying, confess, confess. And then finally you come to a a morning like this and you hear a message like this. and, and, And God just awakens your heart to the mercy and the grace of God. That after all these weeks and months and years you finally say, Lord, I confess to you my sins. I have sinned. And before you even get to the period, before you get to the end of the sentence, before you get to the end of the confession, God says, mercy is all already landed so let today be the day that you stop living with the guilt and the shame and let mercy fly to you today this is our king and listen because of what happened at the altar of Christ and because when mercy flies to us Guys, when mercy lands, it comes with a message. And the message is your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Our sin is atoned for at the cross. Listen, King Jesus, he is the divine king. He is the supreme king. He is the exalted king. He is the holy king. And listen, he is the saving king. That means he saves us from sin. He saves us from eternal punishment in hell. And this is gospel truth. And no wonder in verse 8 we see everything has changed, right? Isaiah says, also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here am I, send me. This is the same guy that said, my mouth is filthy, God. But you see, what Jesus did for us on the cross, it changes everything. That same mouth that was used to convict him as a guilty sinner is now the same instrument that God has changed, transformed, that is now going to proclaim the good news of this King Jesus. That's your story. That's my story. So how do we finish a message like this? Well, we got to worship, right? Because doctrine should always lead to doxology. God has given to us some truth today. And you got to do something with that truth. And the best way to respond to this king is to do what the angels are doing and to declare his praises. Now, there's a couple of ways that's going to happen today. For some of you, it might be you giving your heart to this king for the very first time. Or for you that have walked away from this king and you're coming back home. Listen, that is the way that you are going to praise King Jesus today. I had the privilege of preaching the same message up in Canada. And after I finished speaking it, there was an elderly woman that brought a young 20-something-year-old girl to me. Super skinny. Shaking. You see, this elderly woman was trying to help her get out of a life of years of prostitution. And the way that she was kept in prostitution was her addiction to drugs. And after the message, as this elderly woman is trying to hold her still, this young girl, all she could say was, I 
want this King Jesus. That was her doxology. That was her praise. Maybe you're here, and maybe you've been coming to church for a while, but you don't know this Jesus. You know a Jesus, but not this Jesus. And you might have committed yourself to a Jesus, but not this Jesus. Well, today is the day you got to commit your heart to this Jesus. I remember when I was the director of the Bible College at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, one of the first classes I taught was the book of Isaiah. And there was a student that came every week, and she was involved with um, the women's ministry at a local church. Not only was she attending the women's ministry, but she was one of the leaders involved in discipleship. And she was so excited to take the Isaiah class, but at the end of the semester, she wrote a note to me, and she said, I just wanted to let you know, I gave my heart to Jesus, and he became my king when you taught Isaiah 6. Here was a young lady that was involved in ministry. And when she saw this Jesus in Isaiah 6, she realized whatever Jesus I thought I was serving and embracing, it was not this Jesus. And so she gave her heart to this Jesus in that class. If you're here and you haven't given your heart to this Jesus today, that's going to be your worship. I'm going to have the worship team come back up because here's the second way we as a church are going to respond to this message. If you are a Christian, if you are a believer, then listen, then let's, let's not hold back and let's declare the praises of our king. Listen, if there is ever a voice that should be louder in decimal, not manufactured, not manipulated, but the overflow of a heart. I mean, if it's true that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, then listen, King Jesus should hear a roar from the redeemed church of God. We were purchased by the precious blood of Jesus for six hours. Blood kept pouring out of the body of the king of glory from his brow and from his hands and from his feet and eventually from his side and from his back. Blood staining that Roman cross. And he did that for you. He did that for me. Because you can't be silent about that. This is our king. And the banner he lifted was that bloody, rough Roman cross where Jesus declared, it is finished. But here's the problem we forget. It's so crazy that the most important event in history, we so often forget. And because Jesus knew that, he gave us something. He gave us this thing called communion. Communion happens because God does not want us to ever forget the most important event in world history. In the history of creation. And so we're going to respond to this message by receiving these emblems of the broken body of King Jesus. And we're going to drink that juice that, that when it touches our tongue, the sweetness of the fruit of the vine, it reminds us of the horrific scene where it was the most bloody scene ever. 
couple came to me at Calvary Costa Mesa after three weeks coming to the church, and they said, can God save our marriage? They told me their story, and it was a messy story. And I said, listen, as messy as your situation is right now, I want you to understand there is no scene messier than Calvary. When you take all the sweat and the blood and the stench and the spit, and then you heap on that the mound, the sewage, the putrid ocean of humanity's wickedness and sin, and it was a sewage of filth. And King Jesus went all in to that. And listen, if King Jesus is willing to get into that mess, he's willing to come into your mess. And listen, you know what King Jesus brought into all of that mess? This thing called redemption. And he can bring redemption into your life too. So when you receive the elements, in a moment, the ushers are going to come and distribute the elements. And, and they're all going to be placed a cup within a cup. The top cup is filled with juice. Remember the blood of Christ, the forgiving agent of God. And the second cup is going to contain the bread. Remember the body of Christ that was broken for you and me. And as you receive it, do it with this heart, as the Apostle Paul declared in 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. So King Jesus, we love you, we thank you, we worship you, we praise you today. God the Father, thank you for sending your one and only son to our rescue so that we could bow the knee and declare that he has the name above all names. And God the Holy Spirit, thank you for opening our eyes from the written word, the God-inspired written word of God, and doing what you love doing best, and that's glorifying, magnifying the Lord Jesus. So take all of us, we pray. In Jesus' name, let's move into worship and worship the King.